when we <coughs> talk about the Dhamma, we tend to describe the practice of the Dhamma. Practice leads to the end of suffering. Talk about the causes of suffering, its origin, its nature, the end of suffering and the path that leads to the end of suffering. And all the different aspects of Dhamma we can describe in words, in theoretical terms. And we'll tend to place the Dhamma out, say on paper, lists of Dhammas and descriptions. Of course, that's just the theory which we do have to learn and that's how we begin our understanding of Dhamma. But all that theory has come from an enlightened mind and then using the conventional wisdom of language to describe the experience of the mind. Then we get the theory. But for ourselves in the practice, we also have to go back to the mind to learn from our own mind and to understand that theory from our mind, our heart. So the heart, the mind is the forerunner of everything. As we say, Mano. Vangama Manomaya Manoseta. Mind is the forerunner. Mind is the leader. Mind is the chief. So it's very much a training of the mind, training of the heart that we're undertaking here. We talk about the <clears throat> Eightfold Noble Path. Again, on paper, there's eight factors from Samaditi through to Samasamati. But in practice, those different qualities, factors, are all arising in the one mind. Or the seven factors of enlightenment. These factors are all arising in one mind, supporting each other, influencing, conditioning each other, giving rise to the insight that penetrates truth and frees the mind from its ignorance and the defilements, the attachments that come from that. So the practice is always coming back to the mind, even though we have the different aspects of the practice. That's why one doesn't always need so much intellectual experience of the Dhamma in order to get down to practice. One can just begin by observing the mind, using the simple techniques of becoming more familiar with the mind. bringing up mindfulness and clear comprehension in daily life. This is bringing us to the mind and to the present moment. And developing 
wisdom out of investigating truth. Really these two aspects are right at the heart of our training, our practice. Training in mindfulness and with the continued presence of mindfulness we develop a firmness of mind, stability of mind, which is what they call samadhi. But this is a foundation for developing insight, wisdom, which must also be trained, developed and trained. Both these aspects of the training, they're taking place in the mind. We train the mind with mindfulness, develop samadhi, and we train the mind in investigation of Dhamma, wisdom. So the way of Dhamma practice is always leading inwards in this way, leading us back to our own mind and observing and learning, understanding where suffering arises, how it arises, and its causes and conditions. And then seeing through that understanding of that process more clearly, seeing where we can abandon those causes and conditions through the practice and free our minds from suffering. This is a learning process, it's an inner education process you could say. Training in wisdom, we're training to investigate more closely our experience using the mindfulness that helps to steady the mind, calm the mind, and compose the mind, but then actually actively investigating truth, looking more closely at what suffering is as an experience. And suffering, as we know, it comes out of ignorance, in misunderstanding of truth, lack of clarity, darkness, all the different ways you can describe it. So obviously to remedy that, we need to investigate truth in order to bring clarity, to bring awareness and understanding. That will require repeated investigation looking back at our own heart and seeing where suffering arises. And the very tool we use, wisdom, in order to function has to be coming from a place of peace and wholesome states of mind in itself. So just to use wisdom in all, already we have to start working with ignorance and letting go of ignorance just to use wisdom in order to investigate deeper. And one of the words they use for investigation and wisdom is yonisomanasikara. We call wise attention, wise reflection. The Buddha's definition of that is turning the mind to put attention on 
an object but with a mind that is free from greed, hatred and delusion. In order for wise attention to be taking place or we have to at least temporarily abandon the unwise qualities of greed, anger and delusion. So just to use wisdom, develop wisdom, we already have to be putting effort into our practice to abandon the very qualities which are the opposite of wisdom, coming from ignorance, greed, anger, delusion. But to abandon them we also need wisdom. It's almost like a catch-22, that we have no choice but to keep training in wisdom and investigation, looking back at our own minds. So in the beginning often it's a matter of just reviewing where wisdom has failed and where we did get caught into suffering through the presence of different states of greed, anger, delusion. And looking back and looking at the results of that and seeing the suffering when greed takes over the mind, anger takes over the mind, delusion is taking over the mind. Just through reviewing, so it's after the event. In the beginning, maybe that's all we can do in the practice. So you can learn from your past greed, thinking back, examining it. Maybe as it's, it's gone, it's passed by that mood, but we can look back. When we have greed, well, the mind tends to become very attached, obsessed with the object of greed. So a very obvious one is when you have lust in the mind for another person, woman or man. When there's lust or strong greed in that form present in the mind, then obviously at that moment the mind is obsessed with that object. So that's being conditioned by ignorance, mindfulness, wisdom is gone. At that moment we can say, oh, we didn't have any clarity, any wisdom present in the mind. We are just obsessed with that object and maybe the pleasure, seeking the pleasure, or good feelings associated with that object. But at that time greed in the mind is just obsessed with the object, not seeing anything else. Or if we have anger, we can reflect back to say times we've been angry, we can observe when the mind is angry with a person or in response to a situation. At that moment the mind is just, again, obsessed with the negative aspect of that person or situation, something we don't like about them. At that moment, again, there's no wisdom present, just obsessed with that mood and naturally brings its unpleasant feeling, suffering with it. Or states of delusion, you can look back and see at those times there's no clarity, no wisdom. The mind is unclear, attached in some way or deluded in some way. Learning in that way, in the beginning we look back, we can learn and see, just learning what a defiled state of mind is like, what its nature is, 
how it affects us. That gives us some clarity and understanding on what is an undefiled state of mind. So when mindfulness and wisdom are present, how we can detach from an object that's arising into our consciousness. So maybe it is a mood of a thought or a memory coming up, but instead of grasping at it and becoming obsessed with it, with unwise attention, the mind is <coughs> separating from it with mindfulness, investigating it with wisdom, with wise attention. Probably the most straightforward way to do that in the beginning of the practice again is observing the ending of that mood of greed or anger or delusion, just seeing the impermanence of it and wisely attending to the cessation, the impermanence and the end of that mood. So it might be, again, just reviewing some moods that's arisen in one's day or in one's past and seeing, well, that came up, but now it's gone. It was impermanent, it ended. So rather than putting attention on the root cause of the mood and feeding it like a fire, like putting more f fuel on the fire, we're, we're seeing or focusing on the end of the fire, the point at which it goes out the point of cessation. A very simple technique, but it's a habit we have to train in, obviously, using Yoniso Manasikara and mindfulness, wise reflection, investigation of Dhamma, just to observe the ending of moods. This is a simple example how we can use these techniques by focusing on the mind training the mind in wise attention. Obviously, as you do that more, you get more experienced in it. So the awareness of the cessation of things becomes very prominent, just as the, in the past, say, under the presence of the ignorance, lack of mindfulness, lack of wisdom, tends to always grab onto every new mood and get lost in it through the ignorance. So we become greedy, become angry, become deluded. The mind is actually seeing it just as important to observe the ending of that mood, the impermanence of it, focusing on cessation, yanicca sanya. Anybody can do that as a human being, anybody can notice the end of the moods just as much as they get involved and indulge in the beginning of their moods. But as a training, that's something we can, we can do. And of course, if one concentrates on cessation, often, there's wise reflection, Yoniso Manasikara going on often, regularly, and develop often, develop greatly, develop regularly, then it becomes a skillful habit of mind. The mind is training in Yoniso Manasikara noticing the end of moods and of course with that noticing the cessation of bringing the mind back to stillness, emptiness. Then one can train the mind just to observe any mood and know this is heading towards cessation. 
at any time one can do that and bring up that mindfulness and that wise reflection. So it's no longer just reviewing old moods and things from the past, but actually training oneself in bringing up this reflection as things are arising, different objects come up into consciousness. <coughs> so they say if one can do that, then one is undermining the whole process by which suffering arises. In the pro processing of dependent arising, avijja, pachaya, sankhara, the ignorance is the cause for karmic conditions to arise through onto uh, sense contact, giving rise to feeling, to craving, attachment, to becoming, and to more suffering, birth, old age, death, suffering. By practicing mindfulness, observing it, one is actually seeing the theory that we've read about, heard about in practice for oneself, in one's own mind. As one's experience develops, one not only observes the impermanence of moods, physical phenomena, mental phenomena, different objects that come to consciousness, one's obviously observing the dukkha of them in the sense that they're unsatisfactory, they don't last. There's no real permanent happiness in a mood that keeps fading away. A pleasurable feeling fades away. It's not permanent happiness, it's dukkha still. And one can see the anatta of one's experience, the dependent, conditional nature of the different experiences we have, this body, this mind, how it arises independent on conditions. It's not a self that just is lasting, independent, completely in control of everything. We're a whole set of causal conditions and factors which we call a self, just give it a label as a self. And when we meditate on this, we're developing Yonisomanasikara, we're seeing that process of, say, craving, giving rise to attachment, giving rise to becoming. Becoming is basically the sense of self, the fruition of the whole process. So when the sense of self hardens in one's consciousness, the sense of I am this, I am like this, I am this way. We say, I become this way. So if it is greed, it's based on just pleasurable feelings, the seekers, sense object, sense contact. Craving arises. Arises often so it becomes an attachment. It becomes like a computer program in the mind. We're just conditioned to act in that way and respond in that way over time many times craving for a particular sense object with desire for desire to get rid of desire sense of lasting desire for that to have a lasting happiness or indulgence in that particular sense object the different forms of craving the harden over time and become attachments and the mind just becomes programmed to respond in that way. 
one's whole view, one's whole way of thinking, one's memory, everything becomes programmed to follow that desire. So it's an attachment. And the result is becoming, the self becomes that way. So we become greedy, we become angry, we be and we have a sense of self surrounding that. I am, I have become angry, I am angry, I am greedy. I am this way, I am that way. Obviously the mind is not saying greed or anger, it just is that way. Again, these are just the words that describe the experience, but it's the way a sense of self manifests and how it, we're bound to the world by this conditioning process over time. So obviously that sense of self, the becoming, can be supported by our different views and opinions, our attitudes, the way we look at ourselves, the world. That's the end result. The beginning result is just sense, contact, different objects come into consciousness and then what, what, what we do with them. We like them, we dislike them. Over time that becomes our way, our way, our habit and our way of relating to experience. So we become that way. We become a self. Of course that works on the very coarsest level. Just sort of the most basic things, greed and anger, there's preferences for different kinds of sense objects. We like this, we like certain things in life, certain material objects, certain experiences, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, different ideas, concepts. It can be very on a very coarse level, likes and dislikes, or on a very subtle level, even yeah, the, the refined pleasure, bliss of samadhi is still a cause for dana, upadana, bhava. One can still get a talk attached to rupa jhanas, the pleasure, the states of refined pleasure of samadhi, rupa bhava, arupa bhava, even the most refined states can still be a basis for this process to occur. Which is why you know, the, the Noble Eightfold Path begins with samaditi, learning to get, at least learn to get this basic reflection, the only so manasikara right. Establish right view in all our experience, whatever's coming up. Obviously in the beginning it's the unwholesome desires and the karma it generates, the greed, the anger, the delusion. When we break our precepts, the suffering that comes, the regret, the agitation, the unskillful actions, the unskillful speech. You know, it's in the beginning, that's the most coarsest kind of dana, upadana, bhava. But even as we learn to keep precepts, we have more sense restraint, more discipline, more composure. We're no longer harming others with our speech, our actions. Our speech becomes more composed, more mindful. We're no longer being rude or uh, disparaging of others, lose our temper, get angry with others. We learn to just have enough restraint not to do that. And in our actions, we're no longer harming others. The way we do things, our more aggressive tendencies and so on. We might have learned to do that on one level. So on the course level, we restrain some of our dana, upadana, bhava. But of course, the 
inner roots and attachments, craving attachments still can be going on, of course. And it might change and adapt, just like a virus or bacteria change and adapt as they meet with different difficult, different medical remedies, they sort of tend to evolve. So something like malaria, parasite, they always say every few years it's evolved so it's no longer affected by the medicine, so they have to develop a new medicine. Chelases are like that. So you might develop sila, so you can practice, say, as a bhikkhu or novice anagarika and no longer outwardly expressing your kalesas very much. You have restraint, mindfulness, speak properly, politely, act in appropriate ways. But then maybe the mind starts to feel good about that. So a more subtle kind of kalesa arises, just pride in keeping your seal, pride in virtue. I'm virtuous, I'm a virtuous bhikkhu, I'm a virtuous novice, I'm a virtuous anagarika. Still kalesa, still a subtle form of becoming self. You keep thinking that way, so you yeah, wrong thinking or unwise attention to that, that perception of oneself. Well, it becomes a sense of self in one sense of self then has moved on from being say one who is unmindful always having problems with other people getting into arguments disagreements often in the lay life it's like that maybe you come into the monastery you train yourself up now the problem is oh, I'm one who's virtuous and we have a sense of self around that so just as the class has evolved then the wisdom has to evolve the Yonisomanasikara has to keep probing deeper Am I attached to this? Or it could be the pleasure we're getting from meditation practice. When we begin meditation in the first few years or whatever, maybe it's difficult, don't have much peace. We struggle a lot, we can't sit still, the mind won't settle down, won't concentrate. We often feel a bit disappointed and frustrated. But then maybe after a few years of regular practice, it does start to come together and we experience more states of peace. So we've let go of one, maybe cause of defilement, but the next way the sense of self, the bhava dhanha and the bhava dhanha, upadana bhava comes up is, ah, I'm good now, I can meditate, I can attain peace. And we attach to that, so we have a sense of self. The evolving places tend to be like this. Just as we move from coarser to more refined states of mind as we practice, well, the kilesas evolve. They become more refined to match it. So our sati, our panya, has to become more refined to match that. The way we tend to get exposed in this particularly is the eight worldly winds. This is why the Buddha on his night of his enlightenment, he sat on the eight bundles of kusa grass to symbolize transcending the eight worldly winds. Because from beginning to end, these are bothering us. Whether you're even, even uh, Aryapugala is going to be bothered by the worldly winds till they're our hand completely free from them. So Patujana, there's no doubt about it, the worldly winds are going to be bothering you. So even if you're a good monk, a good novice, good anagarika, you've got sila, you can meditate, you can sit quietly, you've got some samadhi, you've got some wisdom, understanding, 
if you're still not an arahant, the worldly winds will still be niggling at you, just on a more refined level. So this is where our wisdom has to develop, doesn't it? We have to say, am I attached to this? Am I craving this? Am I attached to this? Do I have a sense of self becoming around this? And maybe it's pride in a sense of self in our Vinaya practice. I've got good Vinaya. I'm an expert. I know all the rules. I can do it. I can keep it. Or maybe it's in our meditation technique. I can quieten the mind. I can do Anapanasati for hours. I can walk Jongkong for hours. Keep my mind focused on one object for many, many minutes. And so on. We have to keep investigating that. Obviously, if we have any kind of self, then if the worldly winds come along, well, they'll reinforce that if we're not mindful enough. <coughs> so generally, we come into the robes. You know, from the beginning, we've met our first hand experience of monks maybe is Dhamma teachers, often great Dhamma teachers, or even if they're only mediocre Dhamma teachers, they're still Dhamma teachers. They know more than us, they seem more inspiring than ourselves. So we often have that as our goal. So we begin the practice often with our goal, our aspiration is to become a Dhamma teacher, to be one who sits up, teaches people, impresses people, helps people, which is all very good, but it can also be harboring more of that bawa, dana upadana bawa. It's still a goal, a sense of self that maybe we're aspiring to and we're starting to measure our success or lack of success by. Sometimes it's the suffering of not having achieved that yet. We feel, oh, I'm a failure, I'm a disappointment, I don't know the Dhamma, I can't teach anyone. We go into that extreme, we feel hopeless, failure, useless, everybody treads all over us, doesn't respect us. Or we go to the other extremes, oh, I do know, I'm good enough, I can do it, I can teach. Either way, you're setting up conditions for the worldly winds to bash you down. Because obviously, if there's a sense of self there, not much wise reflection going on, then every time someone praises you, it says, see, yes, I am a Dhamma teacher, good monk, a good novice, a good anagarika, yes, they're praising me, I can do every duty I have to do, I can talk about Dhamma, I can inspire people. So every bit of praise you get will reinforce that power, power dhanha. And of course every criticism, disrespect, people ignore you, hurt your feelings, everything, well that will also reinforce it, but in the negative ways, oh, suffering. They don't respect me, they don't like me, they're not inspired me by me. We go the other way. So this is worldly winds, isn't it? Praise and blame, the gain and loss that comes with it. You become a Dhamma teacher, people give you things, want to help you. Then some people might ignore you, they don't have faith in you, and then you suffer. As long as the process of dana upadana bhava is going on in your mind and you're not picking it up, then you'll tend to go to these two extremes as a bhikkhu. You're either attached to the praise and everybody who likes you reinforces that sense of self or you hate the blame and it reinforces your sense of self in that way. The place in the middle that Ajahn Chah talked about all the time, this place of neutrality, 
where mindfulness and wisdom is operating independent of the worldly winds and this process of which are Pachaya Sankara through to Dhanha Upatana Bhava. That place in the middle we miss. We haven't developed it strong enough perhaps. Haven't done it enough, haven't investigated enough. So unfortunately we tend to always want to be complacent, want to take a rest. But in terms of Dhamma, the Dhamma of the Buddha, then that's really just being lazy, isn't it? Taking a rest. When you're lazy, then the kalesas come in, they evolve, they take over the mind and we become caught into a sense of self again. And the Buddha said even the Sotapanna can be lazy in that sense, they sort of become complacent. They've already seemed to have achieved something, had some wisdom and insight. They've got some, maybe some praise from their fellow bhikkhus or from the laity and then they take it easy. But for sure a Patujana is going to have that. Just a sense of mm, sitting back, going coasting along for a while, doesn't matter. But that's actually very dangerous, isn't it? Because the sense of self could be quietly forming around what we've achieved so far. And it's these eight worldly winds that tend to show that up, they expose it. And you see it, you know, our tendency is always to want to move towards that which is pleasant, comfortable, whether it's material comfort or people, you know, the people who like us, praise us. If you're a monk, it's the ones that sort of sit, like to sit with you and talk to you and say, oh, Bante, you're so good, I so like to listen to you. They want to give us things, help us, spend time with us. And of course we're always running away from the ones who don't like us. That guy doesn't like me, I don't want to have anything to do with him, cut him out of my life, get rid of him or her. We tend to do that, don't we? We tend to still, even though we might have achieved something in our practice, we still get pushed around by the worldly winds. The mind is not yet in the middle, independent of praise and blame, gain and loss status, loss of status. You know, if it's status, if you're a monk, then it will be like, you know, I've got three reigns or five reigns or ten reigns, they've got less than me, they should listen to me, do what I want. And that would be attachment to status. Or it might be, oh, I'm always at the back of the line, I'm always the one being told what to do, I hate this. That's also attachment to status, just not having status. And these are worldly winds which will come up almost daily in our life in a monastery if there's no wise reflection going on we won't see it what it's doing and how the sense of self forms so if over time if something's coming up daily and we're not looking at it <coughs> well it'll become a habit it's oh not again always the one at the back of the line always the one who's got no say in things always being told what to do nobody cares ignoring me whatever or more subtle maybe oh I'm at the top of the line. Everyone has to do what I want. They should follow me, do what I say. If we're not investigating this, then subtly these kind of views, dana, upadana, bhava, will form. And it's a sense of self, isn't it? It can be based on success, based on lack of success, different perceptions, different sense of self arises. And if we keep thinking that way, well, it just reinforces itself over time and it becomes hardened. 
That's upadana, it's hardened into your consciousness, you're programmed that way. So everyone who praises you, you like, you're happy, and they're right, they're good people because they praise us, they're the right ones. Everyone who doesn't praise us, ignores us, isn't interested in us, or actually criticizes us, well, they're the wrong ones, the bad ones. And the mind just keeps going in that way, good, bad, right, wrong, I like it, I don't like it. And so we're stuck in the round of Paticca Sambhubhada, keep ending up with ignorance, conditioning, karmic formations, ending up with Dana Ubudana Bhava, Jati, Jarama, Ranang, Soka, Paridewa, Soka, and on it goes. That's Paticca Sambhubhada rushing around every day in our minds, whether we like it or not, or we see it or not. The only way to get out of that cycle, sort of being trapped in that cycle, is mindfulness and wisdom. Sina Samadhi Panya in all its forms. Wise reflection. Because it will keep coming up in practice, it's not like the Paticca Samubhada is something you, 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 you've read it, you've understood it, and that's the end of it. It's affecting us all the time, these, the conditioning process, these factors going on and on and on. Even if we move through life and become wiser, it just becomes more subtle. Even if one develops great blissful states of samadhi, then one can, that can become a form of upadana that bliss, the radiance of the peaceful mind or the sense of I know from it so we develop some insight, it may be true insight but then we latch onto it with a sense of self that I know, I've seen impermanence I've seen in each dukkha anatta in different forms I can experience emptiness it's I know, I have this knowledge I am like this even that can delude us So the middle way of the, the Buddha and the way Ajahn Chah explains, the middle way is the way of mindfulness, wisdom, carefulness, heedfulness. Always having one sense of it, it's not sure. Every thought you have, don't believe it, don't just rush to believe it, it's not sure. Could be just more of a sense of becoming, a sense of self attaching to something or other that's come up in your life, in your experience. Something good we attach to, something bad we attach to, but don't believe it, it's not sure. When you keep coming back to mindfulness and wisdom is functioning, Yonisomanasika is functioning, you might just be noticing the ending of your thought. I like this, this is good, that's bad, that's wrong. It's just noticing that thought ending, mm, back to emptiness until the emptiness becomes so prominent and that's the obvious thing and all the words and the thoughts and the emotions that come with them they're the temporary kind of visitors to the mind they don't stay very long so they're not that important so it's the only way to develop any kind of transcendence in the mind, any kind of freedom from the around of Paticca Samubhadis, just keep coming back to emptiness in one way or other. 
And the monastic training helps us in that. The Vinaya, the way of practice. We learn how to live emptiness. We're learning, we have equal equality in terms of sila, we all keep the same rules. It's not like one person has to keep the rules strictly, another one doesn't. In the monastery, everyone has to keep the same rules. We're all celibate, we all have to be restrained in the use of the requisites. We all practice mindfulness of speech and actions. Everyone is the same on that level. We have to deal with other people with impartiality. Even though we might like someone or dislike someone, we still treat them with dhamma in our hearts. So it's everyone deserves metta, self-respect, mutual respect. We respect each other. And these qualities, these nourish the mind for the seeing and the experience of emptiness. Obviously, if you're not doing that, if you're giving in to greed and anger in the way you use the requisites and the way you re deal, with, deal with other people, then obviously there's no emptiness there. Then it's the sense of self. It makes it difficult to live in a monastery. Lots of suffering. The hierarchy is designed to help us see emptiness. On a worldly level, you might think, oh, it's all about status, living at the top of the line, getting the best, the most. We hold on to that with our worldly thinking, but in terms of emptiness, it's just a convenient convention. One who ordains before walks first in the line or sits first. One who ordains after sits after. It's just a practical way of running things. And it's in line with Dhamma, like, you know, if you think you should be going ahead of somebody who's in front of you, you have to remember, well, when I ordain, the only way I can ordain is if the other monks agree to perform the ceremony and sit in Hattapasa. So if you want to become a monk, you have to make yourself humble, otherwise who's going to ordain you? Who's going to sit there in Hattapasa and bring you into the Sangha if you have been too arrogant or difficult? Nobody's going to do that. And that's why we have hierarchy. We actually depend on the more senior monks to us to come into the Sangha. It's just the reality of it. Just like when you're born into a family, you have your mother and father. If you're too arrogant with your mother and father, you're just going against Dhamma, aren't you? Because you couldn't be here without them. There are, unfortunately, people in the world who completely lose touch with Dhamma Vinaya. They tend to be lay people. Like someone rang up today and said their son got addicted to drugs. Now, whenever they get the chance, they don't live at home anymore. They're an adult. They just break into either their mother or their father's house. The parents are divorced and steal money. They have to keep mending the locks, mending the windows. They've completely lost touch with who their mother and father is. They just break in and steal their money over and over again through their life. Completely lost touch with Dhamma. A monk can be like that if they completely lose touch with Dhamma or they'll think, well, I should be at the top of the line. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You can't be ordained. If you're at the top of the line from day one, you know, no one will ordain you. You have to come into the Sangha so the correct attitude is dhamma is gratitude, isn't it? Gratitude, appreciation of the sangha because they brought you in to give you a chance to practice. 
these kind of qualities like gratitude, respect, metta, they nourish the arising of mindfulness, wisdom, yoni samanatikara. They nourish the seeing of emptiness. You just have to think it through for yourself and you see, oh, when there's gratitude in the mind, and then the next jump to emptiness, seeing emptiness is actually very, very quick. When there's no gratitude, the opposite is, tends to be pride, arrogance, strong sense of self. Well, obviously, there'll be not much awareness of emptiness at that point. So actually, all our lifestyle is geared to getting us to see emptiness, to transcend dhanha, pachaya, upadana, upadana, pachaya, bhava, bhava, pachaya, jati. It's helping us do that. We're all just another bhikkhu, or another novice, another anagarika. We're not special, we're not important, we're all just the same, we're just another. Which is totally out of line with the rest of the world, which is why it's difficult to be a bhikkhu. But it's the way to freedom. If you want to free yourself from suffering, this is what you have to understand and practice. We have to give up. We give up our material comfort, nekama barami, nekama sankapa. Give up sensual attachment, practice celibacy, we don't have a wife, girlfriend. Give up money, give up possessions, land, property, houses, cars, all of it. So we have to give up, but what we gain is this insight, this inner peace and insight, freedom from suffering insight into the emptiness of all that. None of it lasts anyway. It's all I need to do, Kanata. Naturally, one who's seeing emptiness more and more will tend to be somebody who's easily content content with their requisites, their dwelling place, the people around them. They won't be causing a lot of trouble, they'll be easy to look after wherever they go. Because there's not much to struggle for anymore, not, not much to complain about or fight for. It's all just empty, empty of self. If you can see the emptiness of self in your own experience, well obviously the things around you and the people around you are just the same. This is why we have all these sort of sayings, you know, there's nothing to be, nothing to become in Buddhism. We're not actually practicing to become great Dharma teachers, great terrors, impress a lot of people, have a lot of disciples, lots of fame, reputation, lots of wealth and so on. You know, we're actually practicing to have insight into emptiness, so it's to be nothing, to become nothing. just as a concept, it already is quite difficult for many people to hold on to. We're so trained in our lay life to be something, be somebody. Or sometimes in the other way, in the worldly way of thinking, we say we're being, being trained to be nothing, become nothing, be no one, nobody special, must mean that I'm 
nothing in the sense of, oh, everyone can walk all over me. That's actually the extreme, the negative reaction of, well, if I can't be somebody, well, then I'll be nobody. It's more coming from negativity, that way of looking at it. If I can't be uh, at the top, then I must be at the bottom, I'm no good. Because at the top, if you're seeing the top as being the best, well, obviously being at the bottom, you're seen as the worst. But it's still not right in that sense. Not becoming, not being anything, doesn't mean either. It's not the extreme of success or failure, up or down, rich, poor, high, low, first in line, last in line, the best, the worst, the best of everything, the worst of everything, in charge, in control, telling everyone else what to do, being a tow rag with everyone telling you what to do. It's neither of those two. Being nobody, being nothing, is actually in the middle. One isn't attaching to either extreme. If you can see that place in the middle, you have enough mindfulness, enough wisdom, then whatever the eight worldly winds bring you, they're all just Dhamma, food for Dhamma. Doesn't matter. Praise, blame. If they praise you, you have to think, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Often people praise us undeservedly. If it's blame, you have to think, is it true, is it not? If it's not, well, it doesn't matter, it's not true. If it is true, well, that can actually be a helpful teaching, even if it's coming in an un un unpleasant way. If it's true, then we have to take it on board and practice with it. But either way, it's neither praise nor blame. It's mindfulness in the middle, not being anything, just reflecting using Yonisomanasikara with mindfulness wisdom. This is the middle way of the Buddha. If meditation's going good, it's good. If it's going bad, never mind. Just be mindful of that. Be mindful of the success or the lack of success. The energy, the lack of energy, the bliss, the lack of bliss, the insight, lack of insight. It all just becomes food for mindfulness. All the same, equal value. We're at the top of the line, the bottom of the line. The best kuti, the worst kuti. We have lots of students praising us, no students praising us. We have lots of presents, no presents, good food, bad food, hot weather, cold weather. It's all just food for Dhamma, isn't it? The one who sees emptiness, they get weary of the movements of the mind, always seeking what we like, what we want, and running away from what we don't like, don't want. You're physically tired of running away, mentally tired of running away, getting pushed around by the worldly wind. So mind just wants to rest in mindfulness and wisdom, just quietly reflecting on the truth. If mindfulness and wisdom are present, one tends not to have creating a lot of problems out of things making a lot out of things, just knowing things as they are. So anyway, I'll leave that with your, you for your reflection tonight.